Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your global news hour on today's show, and it's a big one, with the release of more January 6 footage showing fresh perspectives on the events of that day, it's becoming increasingly difficult for the FBI to hide its fingerprints. We'll take a dive into fresh information about that day, an agent provocateur in question, Ray Epps. The cover-up of COVID vaccine injury and death is continuing, despite obvious and glaring data that demands inquiry. President-elect of Argentina faces the battle of the ages to resurrect his country with 130% interest rates. But first today, fighting has continued across Gaza, with the death toll in the enclave rising to over 14,000, according to local officials. At least 10 people were killed in one strike on a residential building in Khan Yunus. NSF has identified three doctors in what Gaza authorities said was an Israeli strike on Al-Ordah Hospital in Jabalia and two more journalists were killed in an Israeli strike in Lebanon, bringing the total number of journalists killed in the country since the war began to three. All told, 53 journalists have been killed since the fighting began, including 46 Palestinians and four Israelis. And the leader of BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, called for an immediate, durable and sustained humanitarian truce in Gaza. The US has said it has retaliated after an Iran-aligned group fired missiles at a base in Iraq housing U.S. personnel. The U.S. strike killed several fighters, the Pentagon has said. Jordan has upped its military presence along the border with Israel amid concerns of forced displacement of Palestinians from the West Bank. Qatar's foreign ministry says negotiations involving Hamas and Israel over a potential release of people being held in are in their final stages. Comments come as Israel's prime minister speaks of progress and the Hamas chief says a truce deal is approaching. Israel's top government officials are meeting to decide whether to accept the deal. Cabinet members in Israel's government are expected to vote on that deal that would see captives held in Gaza released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and a temporary pause in fighting. The deal, if approved, would likely take at least a day to be implemented pending a 24-hour appeal period. It is expected to get the green light despite opposition from Israel's far-right ministers. Netanyahu has pledged that any deal would not mean the end of the war. Speaking ahead of an expected cabinet vote on the possible deal, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defence minister, said that pressure from Israel's operations had helped create conditions for the expected release. He said that if the release agreement is approved, the military and intelligence agencies will resume that pressure to make sure more captives are freed. With more, here is Al Jazeera's Hashem Abuldara in Doha talking. It was a long journey, Neil. There were moments of up and down and there were some skepticism about whether this is something that could be hammered by all the parties. But today the Qataris are saying that they are they have reached the closest point they have ever been in reaching an agreement. The spokesperson of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that this is just a matter of time before finalizing some small details in the agreement. But he told the media because given the fact that this is a sensitive issue, he didn't want to further elaborate on some of the sticking points in that agreement. But this could be a pivotal moment for Qatar's diplomacy, which Qataris have been instrumental in convincing Hamas in accepting 
the terms of the deal and pushing forward for a, a, an agreement that would pave the way for the, some of the captives to be released in exchange of Palestinians detained in Israeli jails to be released at the same time the establishing of humanitarian corridors and allowing more aid into Gaza. If this happens, it's going to be the most significant political and diplomatic development since the start of the conflict on October the 7th. In a virtual summit chaired by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, the BRICS group denounced attacks on civilians in Palestine and Israel, with many leaders calling the forced displacement of Palestinians within Gaza or outside the territory as war crimes. In his opening statement at the meeting, Ramaphosa said that Israel's actions are in clear violation of international law and that the collective punishment of Palestinian civilians by Israel is a war crime, tantamount to genocide. Ramaphosa also said Hamas had violated international law and must also be held accountable. Yet India's stance was comparatively softer, with Foreign Minister Jay Shankar saying that there was a need for restraint and immediate humanitarian support, as well as peaceful resolution through dialogue and diplomacy, seemingly siding with Israel and its biggest benefactor, the U.S., what is seen as a split within the BRICS itself. But that split did not seem glaring at the summit, which experts say is a first-of-its-kind meeting for a group that has previously focused on economic issues. Together, BRICS countries represent 40% of the world population and a quarter of the global economy. Still, many BRICS nations, not just India, have established ties with Israel that they will be wary of severing. China has huge investments in Israel, while India has even deeper historic ties with the country and enjoys military and technological partnerships with it. But with a fiery Iran set to join the group, India might not be able to influence how a new BRICS plus will react to Israel. South Africa, currently the smallest of BRICS nations and one that itself experienced oppressive apartheid rule for more than four decades, sees its own struggle reflected in that of Palestinians, it's consistently been one of the loudest calls for a ceasefire. At the same time, it has been Israel's longest trade partner in Africa. On Tuesday, that relationship appeared to have reached a turning point. Meanwhile, the Pentagon's Deputy Press Secretary, Sabrina Singh, has told reporters that the US continues to supply Israel with 155mm rounds, precision-guided munitions and air defence systems. She added that the U.S. flows aid to Israel from U.S. military stockpiles inside Israel and elsewhere. There's been a huge erosion of support for Israel's war in Gaza in the U.S., though. Nura Sadiq of Michigan State University has said, especially among younger voters aged 18 to 34. Citing polls, she said that a majority of voters in this age group disapprove of both Israel's response to the October 7 Hamas attacks and of the U.S. sending more military aid to Israel. Turning to the upcoming U.S. elections, she spoke about the large Arab and Muslim population of Michigan, a swing state that could be critical to Biden's re-election hopes. Biden won Michigan by a slim margin in 2020, she said, meaning he'll need every last vote next year. But among the state's largest Muslim population, a recent poll shows that 95% disapproved of his handling of the current situation in Gaza. As far as how the seemingly imminent Hamas captive release deal will affect Biden's standing with the US public. Sadiq said that many are in support of a full ceasefire and that the pause in fighting contained in the current deal may not be enough to satisfy them. Meanwhile, the violence along Lebanon's border with Israel has displaced tens of thousands and hurt farmers already suffering from a four-year economic crisis. Many also blame the Israeli army's reported use of white phosphorus for burning nearly 400 hectares of forests and orchards. Artillery fired white phosphorus, a weapon used by the Israeli military in cross-border fire 
with the Lebanese armed group Hezbollah that's now in its seventh week. Hostilities have been mainly confined to military targets a few kilometers on each side of the border. But rights groups have documented the use of white phosphorus in populated areas, which is illegal under international law. Our team has gathered compelling evidence that indicates the Israeli army's use of white phosphorus in four incidents in three different towns alongside the Lebanese southern borders. One of these attacks, which happened on the town on Tyra on 16 October, must be investigated as a war crime because it was an indiscriminate attack that injured at least nine civilians. Farmers and herders are among the casualties in the conflict, which began after Hezbollah sought to relieve pressure on its ally Hamas in Gaza. They haven't been able to reach the grazing grounds because of the danger of strikes. And this is added pressure on a population suffering from a four-year economic crisis. Businessmen like Milad Eid explains to us how many are unable to benefit from the harvest season and that it will take years, if not decades, to recover. For this year, we have 48 to 50 percent of our trees are already smashed. Nothing stay. It was very difficult even at that time to calm the fire because it was windy and very high speed. At times, wildfires that spread for kilometers burned for days. They weren't just caused by white phosphorus, but flare bombs too. More than 400 hectares of green space has already been burned, according to Lebanon's Ministry of Agriculture, along with 60% of forests and 30% of orchards and farmland. And 47,000 olive trees have been destroyed, some of which were centuries old. A U.S. Navy reconnaissance aircraft plunged into the Pacific Ocean following a botched landing attempt at a Marine Corps base in Hawaii on Monday afternoon. Military officials have said the P-8A Poseidon overshot a runway at the Marine installation at Kaneo Bay and it touched down for landing, according to Marine Corps spokesman Gunnery Sergeant Orlando Perez. The plane's nine crew members were able to make it back to shore safely, the Honolulu Emergency Medical Services reported. So far, military officials have revealed a few details about the incident, including what may have caused it, and have yet to offer a time frame for when the plane would be recovered from the sea. According to a meteorologist with Honolulu's National Weather Service, Thomas Vaughan, visibility in the area was about a mile or 1.6 kilometres, and conditions were cloudy and rainy at the time of the incident. The Pentagon has seen a string of mishaps involving military aircraft in recent months, with the Army even temporarily grounding flights earlier this year following separate fatal helicopter crashes in Alaska and Kentucky. Yet another helicopter wreck involving an Apache gunship took place in Alaska last February, resulting in injuries and material damage, but no fatalities, while an unspecified U.S. aircraft crashed into the eastern Mediterranean during a training mission earlier this month. And Kiev is worried that its Western backers are calling for peace out of an irrational fear of Russia. Alexei Danilov, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council, said Monday. Danilov spoke via video link to the annual conference of the Halifax International Security Forum, a Washington, D.C.-based pressure group funded in part by the Canadian government. Ukraine is concerned by the fact that the discussions among certain partners have intensified regarding the need for negotiations, consultations, meeting with the Russians to discuss the issues of the war in Ukraine, a ceasefire, etc. Danilov said, according to a transcript posted by his office, he attributed this to a rudimentary fear of Russia and argued that the West should follow Ukraine's example instead, as Moscow only understands the language of force. 
According to Danilov, the current conflict is a struggle between democracy and tyranny, with the Western Ukraine on one side, Russia, China, Iran and North Korea on the other. If Russia is not defeated, the world should expect a new axis of evil within 15 to 20 years that would include some European countries as well, he insisted. Ukraine and the Ukrainian people will fight to the end. We are sure of our victory. Meanwhile, President Zelensky's top security official described Ukraine's idea of victory as the controlled decomposition of Russia into several parts, leading not just to regime change in Moscow, but the de-sovereignization, denuclearization, and demilitarization of the neighboring country. Meanwhile, he said Ukraine needs more Western funding and support to restore its 1991 borders and become an economic powerhouse. Extraordinary comments coming out of Zelensky in Ukraine. Earlier Monday, US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin arrived in Kiev to offer moral support for Ukraine, but had no new military assistance to announce. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told the outlet that CNBC that Ukraine is utterly dependent on US funding to keep paying the salaries of government workers, calling the continued funding of Kiev a critical priority for US national security. Meanwhile, North Korea launched a military surveillance satellite into orbit on Tuesday, according to state media in Pyongyang and the South Korean military. The successful launch came after two failed attempts earlier this year. The launch was announced by KCNA on Wednesday morning, with the state media outlet claiming that a rocket accurately put the reconnaissance satellite Malignyong-1 on its orbit. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff confirmed the launch, stating that the projectile travelled in a southerly direction over Japan. It triggered a ballistic missile alert in the country, and residents of the island of Okinawa were urged to seek shelter. The launch came after unsuccessful attempts in May and August, both of which fell to the sea shortly after liftoff. Following the second attempt, Pyongyang notified Tokyo that it would try once more between late November and the start of December. Japan and the US condemned the launch, while the US calling it a brazen violation of multiple UN resolutions, and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida calling it a very serious matter that greatly concerns the safety of our people. The capabilities of the Malignon 1 satellite are unknown, and it is unclear whether the probe is successfully broadcasting data back to Earth. North Korea has successfully launched two satellites before. Most recently in 2016, Pyongyang maintains that both satellites were part of its civilian space program. In a separate announcement on KCNA on Tuesday, North Korea's space agency declared that the latest bunch, latest launch sorry, was a response to the space militarization drive of the United States and its followers. With Japan and South Korea both planning launches in the coming months, it is North Korea's sovereign right to respond in kind, the agency said. And coming up after the break, a look at the president-elect of Argentina and what he is up against in a nation under immense debt, hyperinflation and 133% interest rates. This is Compass on TNT Radio. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? 
right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I, I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. In politics, there are moments in time when the breath of fresh air arrives and a whole new era begins. The same feeling of hope when Barack Obama was elected, although that quickly turned into false hope. When in office, Obama said he preferred incrementalism. Revolution was dashed. Only for Donald Trump to emerge as the next true outsider who soundly delivered for the US with increased manufacturing, the rise of new businesses, no new wars, it felt like the outsider had shown up the establishment. Now in Argentina, the arrival of another outsider has once again inspired people to believe again. So who is Javier Millier? What is he up against? It's an incredible story. In October, Argentina's central bank hiked the country's benchmark interest rate for the sixth time this year in yet another attempt to rein in soaring prices that have been weighing heavily on incomes, pushing millions below the poverty line. That rate was increased to 133% from 118% shortly after September inflation data showed that consumer prices in the country spiked 12.7% month on month, 138% annually, which is the highest rate in three decades. According to a report by the National Institute for Statistics and Census, INDEC, released in September, soaring prices pushed Argentina's poverty rate to 40.1% in the first half of 2023. This means that two out of every five people in Argentina now live below the poverty line, some 11.8 million people. Another report for the Centre of Argentine Economics Politics, CEPA think tank, showed that wages in the country are unable to catch up with inflation, with the median wage only covering 85.6% of the basic food basket in August. Some analysts suggest that with the economic crisis this deep, the latest key rate hike may have come too late. It's no longer useful to raise the rate. Expectations have gone away. Raising it at this time is not going to contain the flight from pesos to dollars. National private banking manager told Reuters on condition of anonymity. Private analysts fear forecast inflation to reach 173% this year, while the rating agency Moody's projects 200% and 350% for 2024. Lay has put the focus on his campaign on getting rid of the peso entirely and adopting the US dollar. The severely devalued peso forced the country's government to refinance its $44 billion debt to the IMF. Meanwhile, Argentina is not planning to become a member of BRICS on January 1. Diana Mondino, senior economic advisor to the country's president-elect, has also announced the invitation to join BRICS was approved in August. 
and extended to Argentina, along with Ethiopia, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. The current alliance, as many people are aware, consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. I don't know where or why there is so much interest around BRICS, Mondino said, adding that it is unclear how joining this group would benefit Argentina. The uh, candidate for Argentinian foreign minister also said that the country's government will analyse if joining the organisation promises advantages. Millet has previously expressed opposition to BRICS and also expressed marked reluctance to support economic ties with China and Brazil while planning to work toward economic rapprochement with the US and Israel. I'm not going to push for deals with communists because they don't respect the basic parameters of free trade, freedom and democracy. It's geopolitics, he said in August, adding that some countries are not going along those lines. At the same time, the president to be pledged not to interfere with the country's businesses that are dealing with BRICS countries. Joining the BRICS group was viewed as a chance to open up a new scenario for Argentina. Outgoing President Alberto Fernandez said back in August after accepting the invitation. And a bit more on, on Millet now, something that many people aren't aware of is that the president-elect, who's 53 years old, is an economist and author. Before entering politics, Millet gained notability as an economist and the author of multiple books on economics and politics and also known for his distinct political philosophy. And it was only in 2021 that he entered politics and was elected as a national deputy representing the city of Buenos Aires for La Libertad Avanza. He pledged not to raise taxes and has donated his national deputy salary through a monthly raffle. He's also known, obviously, for his flamboyant personality that many have seen already, his distinctive personal style and strong media presence, his support for freedom of choice on topics such as drugs, guns, prostitution, same-sex marriage, sexual orientation and gender identity have been contrasted to his general opposition to abortion and euthanasia. He also denounces comprehensive sex education in schools as a form of brainwashing, expressed scepticism towards COVID-19 vaccines, supports civilian firearm ownership, proposes to legalise the sale of human organs, promotes the far-right cultural Marxism conspiracy theory, and denies the scientific consensus on climate change. Tell you what, that is something unusual in modern politics. Meanwhile, the campaigning has begun in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and a month-long campaign it will be in the lead-up to that general election in December. President Felix Chishigi, in facing 25 candidates, is in a tense political climate and fighting in the East. Once again, allegations of cheating surrounding the campaign. With more, we rejoin this report. President Felix Chisekedi arrived at a packed stadium in Kinshasa. He's running for a second term in office. In his first campaign rally, Ahead of the general election in December, the Congolese president told voters that he wants to complete what he started five years ago when he took office. We have two choices before us. The first is to choose to go back to zero, give the future we've paid for to people who will bring us to madness. Or we can choose the second choice, consolidate the gains that we have and will continue to achieve. Moise Katumbi. Another presidential candidate launched his campaigns in Kisiangani in the northeast. He's a former governor of the mineral-rich region of Katanga. He says the president has not delivered on promises he made, including dealing with fighting in the east, corruption and poor governance. 
I know you are suffering so much here. I have seen myself even as I came today. No roads, no electricity. This must end. We will bring change as we will take office. We don't need fake promises again. Martin Fayulu came second in the last poll. He disputed the results, saying it was rigged. He believes he is the man to beat if the election is free and fair. There are displaced people that have left the places where the Congolese are being killed, and today there's no one to take care of them. There's no government. Some Congolese are worried that the Electoral Commission may not be prepared to deliver a credible poll because of a lack of transparency in the process. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera. These 37 people, almost all of them young people, lost their lives and dozens of others were injured in a deadly stampede that occurred Monday, November 20, inside the Michael Onano Stadium in Brazzaville in Congo. Thousands of young people stormed the stadium around 11pm to be among the first to obtain the information sheet the next day to enlist in the Congolese Armed Forces. A large crowd tried to force entry to the stadium, causing several people to fall and be trampled by others. Injured people were transported to the military hospital and Brazzaville University Hospital. The authorities reacted and confirmed the provisional number of deaths at a press release published Monday. A crisis unit has been set up. The call for this recruitment of 1,500 young people to serve in the various Army Corps had aroused popular fervour among a section of the population affected by endemic unemployment. The Army has not confirmed whether this recruitment will take place after the tragedy or its postponement. On May 28, an entrance exam for the police and gendarmerie was organised in all departments of that country. Although it attracted many young people, its results are still awaited. And coming up after the headlines, closer scrutiny of the vaccine amongst excess deaths is still being ignored by governments around the world. This is Compass on TNT Radio. What do they want? Exciting news. Brace yourself. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Beijing has cautioned Canberra against making reckless accusations against China after Australia accused a Chinese warship of injuring one of its Navy divers off the coast of Japan. Celebrations are continuing in Argentina, where libertarian economist Javier Millet was elected president on Sunday. And France claims to have conducted its first successful test firing of a long-range ballistic missile designed to be launched from nuclear submarines. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Welcome back. The UK Daily Mail recently reported that US taxpayer money was used to experiment with coronaviruses from the Chinese lab thought to be the source of the COVID pandemic more than a year before the global outbreak. The lab with connections to Anthony Fauci is located in Montana. The NIH under Fauci's leadership infected 12 Egyptian fruit bats with a SARS-like virus called WIV-1 at a lab in Montana in 2018. The WIV-1 coronavirus was shipped from the Wuhan lab the FBI believes caused the COVID pandemic and was tested on bats acquired from a roadside Maryland zoo. The research from 2018 was a joint venture between the NIH's Rocky Mountain Laboratories, 
and the Wuhan Institute of Virology collaborator Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina. Republican Senators Joni Ernst and Eric Schmidt recently sent a letter to the NIH demanding to learn more about the potentially risky research at the Montana facility. Meanwhile, the only official solution to COVID, the vaccines, are the sticking point for a government all-in on the cusp of handing all of us over to our new globalist doctor's surgery, led by PhD Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, whose medicines are organized by philanthrocapitalist Bill Gates and manufactured by their preferred supplier, Albert Baller, a vet and CEO of Pfizer, not a doctor amongst them. Instead of representing the people and questioning the collapsing uptake of the vaccines, the collapsing efficacy of the experimental technology, medical authority and government seems only too happy to deny the people they serve and protect the profit takers indefinitely with indemnity for a preventative medicine that does not prevent anything. If the vaccine fails to do what it's meant to do, prevent catching the virus, how can it suddenly be able to save a life? It just doesn't make sense. It means that there must be a cover-up of sorts, though many people would call this a conspiracy theory. But is it? An all-cause mentality is up and the reason is not understood, then what is happening? From Canada, here is Dr. William Mackis explaining the sorry situation in that country. Is this a cover-up? I believe so. I believe so. You know, we've had too many sudden deaths. Uh, the number one cause of death in Alberta in 2021 was cause unknown, and that's never happened before. You know, we've never had, we had 3,400 Albertans die of cause unknown. And again, it's because the proper autopsies are not being done. The pathologists are aware of it. The health authorities are aware of it. They're discouraging autopsies from being done. And I mean, you have persecution of doctors by the colleges of physicians and surgeons who are telling doctors they cannot raise concerns about the vaccines and vaccine injuries and possible vaccine deaths because they might be facing, you know, they might be causing vaccine hesitancy. And so they're threatening doctors with licenses. In Australia, Senator Gerard Rennick once again takes the fight to Australia's bloated bureaucracy. In 2021, with virtually zero COVID in the community in Western Australia, journalist Rebecca Barnett, who hails from that state, broke new ground with her article appearing in Umbrella News, which showed that whilst there was no COVID in the community, deaths spiked significantly after the vaccine rollout, and she was using government data. This is significant as what else changed? That would be a marker for said medical authority to want to investigate. The frustration that authority will not even look and deny this obvious correlation deserving of inquiry is damning. Why won't they even look? Here is Lone Star Rennick in the Senate estimates asking one such bureaucrat if he at least notices what is going on. Watch the deflection and denial for yourself. But you can take the numbers 172 versus 162,000. Um, interestingly enough, the largest increase in deaths on a relative percentage basis were in New South, uh, sorry, in Queensland and Western Australia. It didn't have any community COVID in the community throughout 2021. So yet again, and if you actually look at the ABS mortality figures, they jumped significantly in May after the. So that was about one month after the vaccine roll roll rollout stepped up. What was the cause of this significant increase in deaths in 2021? Uh, notwithstanding that COVID wasn't in the community uh, throughout 2021 until, you know, late December. So um, before handing to Professor Kelly on, on potential reasons, just noting that a temporal correlation doesn't imply any kind of causation, so we have to be careful. Yeah, I accept that, yeah. but we had an actual increase here. We're not talking about a model, we're talking about real-world deaths, whereby real-world deaths increased by a significant amount. 
Yeah, and, and, and COVID yeah. wasn't in the community that year. And we would acknowledge that um, the ABS statistics show in both 2021 and 2022 that there was higher than normal mortality. That's part of their report. Um, the most recent uh, publication from the ABS covers um, all of 2022 as well as some of 2023. Um, but and as and I said, 2022 is harder to analyse because COVID was in the community and yeah. that jumped by another 20,000, so we went to 190,000. I just want to focus on 2021 where we had a clear period there where there was no COVID in the community, but we had the vaccine rollout. And there's a very strong temporal correlation between the vaccine rollout and the increase in deaths. Do you accept that there's a strong correlation? Um, in terms of the numbers that you're quoting, I believe that's correct that there was an increase during that period. But again, I would reject that the, the temporal correlation actually is, is due okay, to any... And that's within your rights to do that. So given that there was a significant increase in actual deaths, what has the health department done to analyse why those deaths jumped in 2021? Yes. Because that's, you know, it was a 6% increase. I mean, that's a Sigma 6 event. The, the numbers in... We, we've been looking at the numbers across the whole pandemic, so it's, it's important not just to just focus on 2021. Um, the ABS do a good job of um, listing causes of death um, and major contributors. They tend to be, um, have remained the usual suspects in terms of um, heart disease, um, dementia, um, diabetes and cancer. Um, but we did see in 2022 um, significant deaths as a result of COVID. Um, and I think it is worth saying here that of the roughly 20,000 excess deaths that the ABS reported in 2022, um, roughly 13,000 of those um, were either people dying from COVID or um, deaths which are associated with COVID. So of that 20,000, I mean, 13,000... And perhaps the best way to understand what is going on is when you hear from actual doctors who woke up during the process. One such doctor is Sunil Dant. Here he is speaking in his latest video about the mainstream media's obfuscation of the rise in heart attacks and the media's diversion. Eggs, eating eggs is a big problem and risk factor for heart attacks. So I guess I'm in huge trouble then because I eat multiple eggs every day. They are a superfood. They are a complete food full of great nutrients but apparently eggs are a problem how about this one too much exercise never mind the fact that for most people out there 99 percent plus the problem is too little exercise let's push a narrative that too much exercise is causing heart attacks artificial sweeteners now i talked about this in a recent video artificial anything is bad news but artificial sweeteners now appear to be a cause of heart attacks so be very careful and of course, the favorite one, climate change, because climate is so different, isn't it, from a few decades ago. Summer is no longer summer, winter is no longer winter. Climate change is causing heart attacks. And linked to that, air pollution. I made a video about that recently as well. Air pollution appears to be triggering heart attacks. That's what data from some countries is saying, according to the mainstream media. 
What about this one? Women who have children too young. Never mind the fact that the whole of evolutionary biology is designed for the female of the species to basically have children as soon as possible, at least in nature. And that's how things worked up until relatively recently for human beings. Our grandparents, great-grandparents all had children much younger than today. But apparently now, the evidence is that having children too young causes heart attacks. Holiday stress. Everybody gets so stressed around Thanksgiving and Christmas because it's so stressful, isn't it? That causes heart attacks. What about drinking coffee? That is huge. So many people drink coffee now. That's triggering heart attacks. Asthma a condition which is rife across the Western world, especially closer to big cities with air pollution, asthma is now linked to more heart attacks. How about changing the clocks? We recently underwent a time change in the United States. Do you know that that causes heart attacks? And more and more and more. All of these different theories and hypotheses being reported by the mainstream media. But we have a clown establishment. We have a clown medical leadership. We have a clown mainstream media. They always want to divert our attention away from what matters. They aren't talking about everything that's happened, especially over the last couple of years related to the pandemic, lockdowns, other pandemic-related factors, which are contributing to this very obvious rise in heart attacks and younger and younger people suffering. But let's not focus on that. Let's divert attention away with anything possible and all of these other ridiculous theories. It's an extraordinary scenario. You've got a doctor or doctors who spend a minimum of six years at university and go on and do many more years of specializing doing night shifts and incredibly long hours, study, 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 paying off massive debts, and then go down this pathway. Dan was another regular doctor who, in his own words, became fully red-pilled to the sheer volume of medical establishment corruption and buffoonery. I quote, 2020 was like a bad dream of foolishness, but I'd give the answer. 2021 was when I woke up and I witnessed, one, the big pharma shill doctors and institutions willing to die on the hill of saying that someone with high antibody levels from prior mild infection needs to be vaccinated ASAP with a novel vaccine, inverted commas. Two, when I saw top scientific institutions rush to change long-standing medical definitions to suit their narrative. And three, seeing doctors and medical centres deliberately gloss over serious side effects and adverse events and knowingly shame, silence, and censor those poor people that suffered. End quote. And after the break, as the J6 videos are released, yet another establishment narrative looks like it's coming crashing down. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Thanksgiving's less than a week away, and if you're planning on taking your kids to the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Macy's Parade in New York City, or watching it on TV with the kids, Think again, give serious consideration, because Fox News reports that as of Tuesday, 20,000 outraged people have signed a petition posted by one million moms protesting the inclusion of two Broadway shows in the parade, both of which featured transgender and non-binary performers in major roles. Yes, indeed. Think again. Here's Kristen Wagoner with Alliance Defending Freedom. Just another example of an ideological war that's being waged on families and customers are saying they've had enough, but it seems that corporate brands that were once trusted just still aren't getting the message. 
But I think you're seeing parents stand up, rise up and say, we're going to parent and we expect our family friendly events to truly be family friendly and not teach our children values that we object to. We need to understand very clearly that these ideologies that are being peddled in films and in our school systems are designed to pit children against their parents. And it's time for parents to not stand on the sidelines, but to truly use their influence. Folks, don't let your kids be indoctrinated. Find something else to do. Don't let them watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Make sure you tune into my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT Radio. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was gonna make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. If you saw the documentary 2000 Mules, if you watched the election count in real time, if you saw how the election counting practiced social distancing that prevented scrutineers getting close enough to properly monitor counting, to the vote counting being stopped suddenly across multiple jurisdictions at the same time, only for new ballots to arrive and massive spikes with all or more than 95% of those votes going one way and that to Joe Biden, you would have to be blind or a denier to think that the 2020 election was anything but fair. Is it any wonder that the one man who had the power to do something, Mike Pence, who instead supported the establishment, who you can't fight City Hall right, was the first high-profile candidate to drop out of the presidential race? Despite the numerous charges against Donald Trump across multiple states and reasons all coming to the fore, most based on nonsense, never mind the political establishment when they whinge and complain that if Donald Trump gets back into power, he might turn the tables. With apologies in advance for this next clip, Joe Scarborough, the former congressman, alongside his equally cringeworthy sidekick and wife, Mika, who always looks like your disapproving auntie when you put your knife and fork in the wrong place on the Christmas dinner table, both are bemoaning that the former president might just seek justice and drain the swamp. Yeah, have a responsibility to, to really to tune out the voices of of the haters, of, of the people that are constantly uh, double shilling and triple checking and shilling for him and suggesting Sick. that somehow they're being biased, bending over backwards, treating him like a normal candidate. He's not a normal candidate. He is running to end American democracy as we know it. He's an authoritarian who a, a court uh, in, in Colorado two days ago ruled that that he led an insurrection against the United States government. He's charged with leading schemes to help overthrow the United States government. So so if they want to frame it uh, that way, that's fine. If, if you want to be fair, if you want to be fair, then you will frame this 
uh, as uh, Joe Biden being the candidate that supports American democracy and Donald Trump, a candidate who supports a new form of government here that's authoritarian. It's really that simple. And by the way, Reverend Allen, people go, oh, you can't compare him to past Nazi leaders. You can't compare him to this past Nazi leader or that past fascist leader because he hasn't done that. Well, what hasn't he done? He hasn't done the things that the American judicial system did not allow him to do last time, but may very well allow him to do this time or a judicial system that will be ignored by Donald Trump and ran over by Donald Trump to create the greatest constitutional crisis of our lifetimes. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it when he gets a chance to do it. And if he is voted into office, then a lot of these people that are talking about literal or figurative or whatever the hell they're saying, you're going to look like idiots. Uh, Because he will do, he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Uh, Just look at his past. It's not really hard to read. Again, the only thing that stood between him and the destruction of American democracy was the federal judiciary. No doubt about it. And and I think that uh, when we talk about framing this. That's what counts as mainstream news today. At the heart of the election results is lack of scrutiny that resulted in the January 6, 2021 event at the Capitol. Now that Mike Johnson, the new speaker, is seen to release 40,000 hours of footage from the day, the new vicar has seen more people realise that this was likely a setup by the FBI. Even Stephen Sund, the police chief from the Capitol on the day, explained that he was not privy to intelligence that suggested there might be trouble on that day, as previous MAGA events were always calm. And so the possibility that this was an inside job is being scrutinised ongoing with all eyes now on. Here is part of Lara Logan's report on the J6 event, which focuses on the mysterious character called Ray Epps, who many believe was a protected agent provocateur. We have video of Ray Epps holding up this huge magazine, steel magazine, and he's actually helping push it. Some of the men who were touching that sign, they're in prison today. Jim Hoft runs the Gateway Pundit, an online news site that's been a thorn in the side of progressives and establishment censors ever since he started blogging some 20 years ago, when the internet was still fairly new. Few have devoted as much time to covering January 6 as Hoft and his team of reporters, who've published well over a thousand stories in two and a half years. He told us they were one of the first to report on the possibility, still unconfirmed, that Ray Epps may be an informant. A couple of these guys touched it because it went over their head and they didn't want to get hit in the head. Um, It got pushed at police. No police officer was injured, but... These, these people were still sent to prison. So they're in prison today for this. Ray Epps is pushing the sign, and he was never arrested for that, right? So it's just another incident of Ray Epps, sus- this suspicious activity. The media won't report this, but uh, we have the footage and be glad to share it with you. Hoft did share the footage with us, and you can see the sign going over the crowd as he described. 
Here, Epps reached up and touched it for about 10 seconds, and then made this gesture with his hand, signaling toward the Capitol and the police. As the sign passed and changed direction, Epps can be seen on camera, pushing it towards the line of offices, and then joined in in pushing the crowd forward. We couldn't ask him about this because he didn't respond to our requests for an interview, and his attorney declined. There's no doubt about Epps touching the sign. That was confirmed by the DOJ and Ray Epps himself in the statement of offense he signed when he pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge for disorderly conduct on restricted grounds in September of this year. It said he touched the sign with both hands and specifically mentioned the hand signal seen on camera, where Epps pointed forward toward the line of offices several times. The government offered no explanation for what that meant and did not address Epps pushing the sign at police, an act that got others charged with various offenses, including assault. Also not in dispute, the fact that Epps was pushing with the crowd. According to the statement, a group of rioters, including Epps, pushed forward, leaning their bodies on each other. Again, no explanation was offered. So what do we really know about Ray Epps? Why is he being protected? Why was he on the FBI's most wanted list and then suddenly removed? How is it possible that he could be in the sights of a rogue FBI agency who would use him to set up innocent Americans just wanting integrity and democracy? That same democracy that has seen many Americans join the military and join overseas wars to bring democracy to other nations. Let's find out a bit more about Ray Epps and the special treatment that he was afforded. Ray Epps denies being uh, a source or an undercover or anything, you know, says it's all nonsense, not true in the least. His wife says the same, so does his attorney. Why don't you believe him? Oh, I think um, it's the strangest story, isn't it? Here you have um, the January 6th committee you have the media defending this man who's clearly leading efforts to get people inside the Capitol. How does anyone prove that someone is a confidential source for law enforcement, whether it's Department of Homeland Security, JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force, FBI, um, ATF, right? Or as we found out, even TAB. I mean, how do you find out? These agencies are never going to admit it. You know, I think the what, what's interesting is um, Ray Epps had threatened to sue some people. He right? has sued some people. He, he needs to put his money where his mouth is. In a series of news reports, Hafton the Gateway Pundit traced what happened to other protesters who touched the sign and ended up in prison. Brad Smith, who was 24 years old when he was raided by the FBI, got an assault charge and almost three and a half years for placing his hands on the sign for a few seconds and a conspiracy charge for texting with friends about saving D.C., according to his mother. One of his friends, Marshall Neef, a young father from Pennsylvania with severe mental health issues, also got close to three and a half years for, according to the DOJ, carrying a wooden club and participating in hoisting and pushing a large metal sign frame into a defensive line of offices. 30-year-old Thomas Patrick Hamner pled guilty to one charge for grabbing and assisting in throwing the sign 
and got 30 months. Jose Padilla from Tennessee and Sean McHugh from California both got six and a half years, or 78 months, for touching the sign and other charges. McHugh, a young father, spent two years in prison waiting for his trial. Vietnam vet Howard Richardson and Alan William Biley, both from Pennsylvania, also touched the sign, but were imprisoned for unrelated assault charges. Two and a half years later, Ray Epps has yet to set foot in jail, although he could get anything from zero to six months for his misdemeanor charge when sentenced in December. In his plea agreement, the Justice Department cited his lack of criminal convictions as a factor in sentencing. We took a closer look and found no convictions, but our search turned up what appeared to be an outstanding arrest warrant in Pennsylvania from 2015. It was, ironically, for the same crime Epps was urging people to commit at the Capitol, criminal trespass. We contacted the victim named in the arresting officer's report, but have withheld her identity for privacy reasons. She declined to comment, but we did reach the judge in the case, Daniel O'Donnell. Case records showed he signed off on two updates, one in July 2022, the other in October of this year. But he stressed the Class C misdemeanor for defiant trespass was minor. Judges in Washington, D.C. seem to have taken a different view. By July this year, they'd sent close to 200 January 6 defendants to prison for trespassing and other charges. Roadblock after roadblock and absolute power behaving accordingly, using this power to convince you there is nothing to see here. Just go along with the narrative, or if you are a little doubtful, using cancel culture and censorship to at least make you go along to get along, because why would anyone want to stand out against the crowd? Only those who oppose the system have the knowledge to know something is just not quite right, whether it be a man-made virus without an official origin or a solution that cannot be scrutinised or a system of democracy that censors dissent. This is not the world we grew up in. It's barely recognisable. And why does one human being have the right to control another? The way the world is being reshaped right now, which just so happens to be on the eve of the 60th anniversary the 35th president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, with more questions than answers and a bunch of still unreleased files hiding almost certainly the reality of yet another government cover-up against its own head of state. And two people died in the hours following Australia's victory in the Cricket World Cup final on Monday morning in India. The host country, India, plunged into deep sadness after their cricket side was upset in the final, having been on an undefeated win streak heading into the decider in Ahmedabad. Australia literally silenced the more than 100,000 fans watching inside the Narendra Modi Stadium. They were heartbreaking scenes after the final with Indian players and fans seen in tears. In a cricket-obsessed country like India, the toll of the defeat is still being realised. According to local reports, the deaths of two people can be traced back to the defeat. According to the Hindustan Times, a 32-year-old software engineer died of a heart attack in Tirupati after the loss. According to World is One News, a 23-year-old man from West Bengal also took his own life as a result of the defeat. Truly, truly extraordinary circumstances in what was meant to be or seen as one of the great cricket matches of all time. Not everyone can win. Sometimes you lose even when you are a hot favourite. 
such is the sorry state, goodness me, of sport and sportsmanship. What a world we are living in today. Well, that concludes today's edition. Coming up next is Chris Smith. This is Jason Olborn for Compass on TNT Radio.